Totally Football Show. Liverpool are top. City beaten at the bridge in a match featuring a magnificent Kante on the field and three stupid ones on the sidelines. We round up all the weekend's drama from Liverpool to River Plate. We look at the Premier League's bottom, where like a man who's run out of toilet paper, Ranieri has a big job on his hands. And we preview the final showdowns midweek in the Champions League group stages. All that in the Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Okay, who's who in the pod today, listener? Well, we've got Michael Cox serving up the tactics like a dyslexic confectioner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank right. you. Right, not at all. All the way from Manchester, it's Ian Irving. All right, James. I'm well, thanks. And you're fresh from Man United Fulham. An enjoyable football match at Old Trafford. Wow. <laughs> Who'd have thought? <laughs> and uh, Sash, you, you've been to not one but two enjoyable, particularly enjoyable matches for you. Uh, a kind of uh, extraordinary double bill of Bournemouth, Liverpool, and then the Chelsea Man City. Wow. All in the rain, all topped off by the Chelsea Buffet. All right. Mm. Oh, nice. All right. Well, um, top of the table, much like Chelsea's Buffet, uh, are Liverpool now, high Liga, as they say, one point clear of Man City. It feels a really momentous weekend. Well, they sort of asked Guardiola about it after the game and he was like, well, we were the favourites yesterday, now you're asking about Liverpool being favourites. So I think what Liverpool have done quite well uh, is keep pace with Man City and I think that's the main takeaway from the weekend. Um, City were the first to slip up, but I don't think I don't think it really means that much whether City drew or lost that game. Um, and also the next few games are much easier than Liverpool's and I, th- I still think Liverpool are very much the second favourites. Next weekend it's M62 derbies galore as Man City host Everton, while Man United head the other way to uh, Anfield. Was it significant, Michael? No, I'm not sure it was, actually. I oh. mean, I, I don't think City are the side to get really derailed by a defeat like this. I think they'll just continue on the same path. De Bruyne's going to come back. Aguero's going to come back. I was surprised they lost, but I'm not sure it's really changed the balance of the title race. Yeah, they didn't seem to completely sort of lose their minds over it. I would say even to the extent that when they were started losing... There wasn't really much of a response, which I thought was a bit odd. Um, I think they were they were hampered by David Silva coming off injured uh, because after they completely lost all the shape and everything. Uh, but um, yeah, they didn't really come across as a side that you know for whom it's such a disaster. I thought what what was more important is how Chelsea celebrated their win, because a year ago when Man City won at Chelsea, who were champions back then, uh, it felt like a really huge win for Manchester City. Mm. This time. It was the Chelsea technical staff who stayed behind to congratulate all the players on actually coming through this game and winning in the end quite convincingly. Right. What was also interesting was how Liverpool celebrated their win with fireworks apparently going off around Merseyside as as they went top of the table. Is this the first time they've been top since the days of this does not slip? I mean top in a realistic point of the season they were probably yeah they were close last year mm. or no close a couple of seasons ago I think but I think properly top yeah I think it's probably the first time and it feels like you know they got there on merit uh, they stopped dropping points against the lower ranked teams they only drew with um, members of the top six so far this season and I thought what was really impressive about the performance at Bournemouth is how professional it was because given the conditions oh my days it was horizontal rain I was sat um, on Sort of my desk was almost uh, the top row of the stand, roof mm. above me. Yet it was raining on my desk uh, during the first half. It was it was pretty horrid. That type of situation, it's very easy to make 
ridiculous mistakes with the wind, with the rain. Also for the players, Sasha. Oh, true. <laughs> <laughs> Think of the players. Think of the players. And I was, I was looking at the players thinking, I have to go walk back to the station in this, and you're actually playing. And the brilliant um, Alison Hedder that everyone talks about, that was actually a miscued crossfield ball from James Milner back into his own box. Mm. And you could see that the mistake was made by Bournemouth. Okay, maybe Salah was marginally offside, but Begovic spilled the shot. Alison didn't make those mistakes. And then Salah scored two excellent centre-forward goals. Again, controlling the ball was being kicked in difficult conditions and I I think it's probably the best Liverpool performance of the season overall I would say the, in the league. Okay, the best Salah performance of the season? Oh definitely, I mean look it's um, when he got the ball there was absolutely no question that uh, that Mr Cook uh, will struggle to do anything to stop him. This was Steve, Steve Cook, Cook, Lewis Cook yeah. was out injured. I mean it was a mayor for Steve Cook he also scored an own goal um, yeah. To what extent was that his kind of bamboozlement by Mo Salah behind his own goal. <laughs> yeah, in the back of his mind. That does happen, doesn't it? The, interestingly, the, the second goal, I think it was, when Cook tried to take Salah yeah, down, yeah. he strained that much to stay on his feet that the slow-mo camera showed a vein bulging in his neck. That's just how much determination he had to stay on his feet and score that goal. I really enjoyed that. Overall, I'm just confused by Liverpool a little bit because I don't really know if they played that well. Like not just at Bournemouth, like all season, defensively really, really good, really mm-hmm. good, a massive improvement. Allison and Van Dyke, everyone says it, and they say it for a reason. They have improved them. Uh, the fullbacks look better. Joe Gomez has been an improvement. Certainly in that perspective, they've played well. But offensively, I don't really know if they have played well. But the top of the table, they've made the best ever start that Liverpool have made to a Premier League season. They've got forty-two points. They've scored thirty-four goals. They've conceded only six. It's the fourth best start ever in, in, in history after 16 rounds. You're saying this is the best performance they've had. I mean, part of the uh, issue is that Salah so makes it look so easy when he's in this kind of form. I guess so. And and actually, you saw the confidence returning um, to him. And the more confidence he had, the more goals he scored in that match, the more threatening he looked, the more worried the Bournemouth defence looked. The third goal was absolutely brilliant, wasn't it? I mean, <laughs> the best bit of that was the finish. After all that, just to poke it in the corner um, I think there was actually some Bournemouth fans behind the goal applauding that goal as mm. well actually because uh, it was that good but they're probably just trying to keep warm uh, or, or dry or dry <laughs> interested yeah yeah. but I, I think um, what obviously helped Liverpool as well is um, Callum Wilson wasn't playing which yep. was uh, you know news just before the kickoff, but I think this whole confidence, um, you know, about how Liverpool go about their business, I think I think it does have to come from the fact that they're so safe at the back now. I mean, the six goal c- goals conceded—that's on par with the 78-79 season when Liverpool I think conceded about 15 in 42 game season, which was like this. This is how that's the pinnacle of a great defensive Liverpool team. And this team here, you know, 10 clean sheets this season, uh, only conceded six goals. I can actually probably remember all the six goals. And I think only two of them were when Liverpool properly opened up. Um, and I think it just builds a foundation from which you can then just go on to win games because you know that there won't be any mistakes at the back. Mm. Gomez being out for a while, what are they talking about, a month? Six weeks. Six weeks, is it? We'll see how much impact that has over the busy Christmas fixture period. Just signed a new contract this morning. Mm. Yeah. Until 2024. But Mo Salah... Getting him back to that kind of form could be decisive. I mean, it, we were talking about this does not slip, and of course that was the season that Luis Suarez was just defying all laws of gravity, etc. With Liverpool, could Salah have a similar role in a title run here? Do you think, Michael? And how good was it also when he made James Milner cry at the end? <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, that was lovely. Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing about Salah is he's completely changed his position for this year so smoothly that we haven't even remarked upon it. But mm. he played right wing, I think, every game last year. I don't think he played up front at all. And this year, he's been primarily a centre-forward and he's got such a good relationship with Shakiri, who's come in and, you know, just almost seamlessly adapted. He can play right, he can play centre, and that allows Salah to kind of shift between the two positions. I think Firmino's got a little bit of criticism, but I think he's done some good kind of subtle work in a number 10 role. He's not a kind of expressive number 10 player, but he's a very efficient player who does play good balls to Salah. And I think that kind of evolution is important because we talk so much these days about teams getting found out. You know, even Conte's Chelsea revolutionised the league with a certain system and eight months in, they were really struggling and, and Liverpool haven't fallen into that trap. And I think they deserve great credit for being top of the league. We probably haven't given them enough credit for continuing to pick up wins. Well, a great week for Liverpool, starting off with the derby, then that come from Bayern at Burnley, and now this. And then, so basically, when the final whistle blew, you ran down to the train station. I have to admit, I ran down to the train station after Fabinho uh, had his little revenge on Lerma. Uh, Lerma is hilarious. Uh, 22 bookings now uh, since the start of last season. 15 minutes in, out of nothing, just takes out Fabinho. So about 20 minutes to go, Fabinho waits for a bouncing ball and he waits a little bit longer and he just goes in on Lerma for revenge. And at, at that stage, I thought this is done. It was 3-0, so I actually missed the fourth goal from Salah. So I ran to the station a little earlier. Okay. All right. Well, you had places to be, the, the police specifically being Stamford Bridge, for what, by this point, it had assumed enormous importance for you? For the league, for, the, for, for football, for football, James. Right. For life. For life. Okay. Well, tell you what, let's have a, a little pause, gather our, our strengths, uh, and then we'll tackle the immensity of Chelsea Man City. You're listening to The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. So, Saturday tea time... Chelsea, Man City at Stamford Bridge with first place in the league now on the line. Quick reminder that prior to this game, two of the kind of certainties about Chelsea were that Luis was a total liability and N'Golo Kante was being... This notion that he could be roaming upfield and scoring goals was costing Chelsea dear. Ha! Maurizio Sarri won, critics nil. Michael? (laughs) Yeah, it was an interesting game. I thought Chelsea were really quite poor first half until they scored and then they were transformed into a team that was so much better going forward than in the first half and indeed the Manchester City and defensively completely solid and Luis is this kind of odd player who the way he plays he's always taking risks and sometimes it looks brilliant and sometimes it looks disastrous and in the space of what a week he looked disastrous against Tottenham he looked fantastic here and not just in his defending but his pass over the top for Pedro that broke that Man City press was essentially the the you know, the turning moment of the the turning point of the game, if you like. Mm. And his header for the second goal was really good as well. Quite an underrated little nod. So it was a strange game. As I said before, I don't think City will... I don't think it's too much of a setback for City, this. I think they'll continue doing what they're doing. But for Chelsea, having lost two in three and some grumblings from the fans about the tactics, about certain roles of players, I think this showed, one, that the Kante thing can work um, and two that they can adjust and they can play deeper and they can defend which is the kind of old school Chelsea rather than the new Sarri Chelsea but uh, they combine the two very well We said after the Tottenham defeat that it was like a delayed I told you so that Jorginho couldn't play in that role in, in big games and that David Luiz was an issue in big games as well well now Sarri's saying well I told you so because mm. actually where, they can where was Kante actually playing though because he was he wasn't playing that far forward in this was he no he was playing I'd say closer to alongside Jorginho I mean I think that's the role in general that he's been playing and I'm not sure it's an issue I'm surprised people are still 
confused about how this system works. Um, but in these bigger games, he'll sit closer to Jorginho, who was himself pushing forward slightly higher, as Sasha mentioned to me beforehand. And yeah, because I think literally the first time they did the press was Jorginho pressing. I was like, number five, not number 17, because Kovacic is usually up there. The deeper defending, I think Guardiola admitted after the game that he was slightly surprised by this. But it also, Sari was slightly surprised by this. He said it wasn't really his intention to do so. And looking at what happened in the match, I think first seven, eight minutes, Chelsea did press high quite well. And then what happens, Fernandinho absolutely cleans out Jorginho. And City break. And I think at that stage, there's a bit of fear in the Chelsea players' minds. And for the next half an hour, I also judging by Sadi's reaction, I don't think they're doing what he thinks they're supposed to be doing. Would they have survived that first half if Aguero had been on the field? Well, it's an interesting point, that, actually, because you know we're talking about a City team that were missing Aguero, that were missing Kevin De Bruyne, that were also missing Benjamin Mendy. And actually, Fabian Delft didn't have his, his greatest afternoon um, up against um, Pedro and... The, the, and just generally, just the the pace of the of the city attack and false nine. You know, we've, it's been debated lots and lots and lots and lots. And you know, you sort of looked at the way it worked for Chelsea actually in that game compared to the way it worked for City. But I, I just think that if you're missing someone like Aguero, despite Sterling's improvement, despite the number of goals that he scored as well, I just think you're missing that real, you know, um, thoroughbred striker, that real sort of guy that, that huh? you can't possibly give a second to a yard of space to half a yard of space to because he'll punish you and his record at Stamford Bridge actually down the years has been good as well Sergio Aguero so I do think it would have made a difference whether it would have been a completely decisive difference I'm not sure because I certainly think the way Chelsea played in the second half deserved that victory I think the thing about the high line is interesting because it reminds me a little bit of when Vias Boas was there and his big thing was pushing up the pitch and Chelsea got a really crucial Champions League win the kind of last group game I think it was at home to Valencia and the players basically played the old school Chelsea way on the edge of the box. And there was this big confrontation in the interview afterwards where Vias Boas was basically, not in, not literally, but basically saying the players kind of overruled me and played how they used to. And there is this culture at Chelsea. I know it's a different team, but there is this culture of the manager's instructions. Uh, they're there, but the players do take quite a lot of responsibility themselves. You look at how they got to the Champions League final under Avram Grant. Tactically, I'm not sure Grant was up to much, but the players kind of managed themselves. And I think they did that quite well here because I think if they'd stayed too high up the pitch with the pace of Sterling, you know, they didn't have Aguero City, but with the pace of Sterling, I think they would have got punished and mm. they found the right the right block. And City didn't create anything, really. Well, There's yeah, that, that Sterling chance in the first half, but apart from that... Well, the first 45, they were swarming forwards and it was scary watching them all kind of screaming down. It, w- on it was, but there was one shot in the game in the first half hour. Which was the Sterling chance. Which was the Sterling And, chance. and then in the second well, half, they're only a goal down. Are you surprised at how little City created? Yeah, absolutely. Because that's when you expect a team like City to react. You know, at 1-0 down, even at 2-0 down, I suppose. You know, Is it because they don't have any practice? Um, maybe, yeah. Um, other than a few minutes against Wolves, it was the first time they'd been behind this season and in a match like that at Stamford Bridge as well. Um, I'm not sure with City. I don't think this is going to, ch- like the lads have said, I don't think it's going to change a great deal. In some ways, this sounds like a really perverse thing to say. Ooh. Somewhere deep in Pep Guardiola's psyche, there's an element of him that will be pleased that they've got a defeat and they've got it out of the way because he gets so irritated by the invincible talk. He gets so irritated by journalists constantly asking, are you going to lose? Could you be the invincibles? And, you know, and even even with the, the achievements of last season, he was so irritated by it throughout the year. And it maybe makes it easier for him to manage his team, although he's dropped three points. It maybe makes it easier for him to manage his team rather than continued success which there is that danger that it goes to 
complacency. Heads. Yeah. yeah, I mean, he has raised this point before when he was a Bayern Munich manager and he was talking after they lost 4-0 to Real Madrid or 5-0 on aggregate to Real Madrid in the Champions League semi-final. And he was pointing to that and the fact that Bayern had beaten Barcelona 7-0 on aggregate the year before and the semi-final in the World Cup between Brazil and Germany. And he was talking about how these invincible sides, when they go behind, they panic and they don't know how to play that situation. So I think that is interesting. And I think in terms of the unbeaten run, the funny thing is it's not necessarily a good thing to have an unbeaten run because the title winners are going to get such a high number of points Mm. that if you're drawing a game and you've got this 25-match unbeaten run in the back of your mind to preserve... Actually, you need to go for the win. You need to risk losing one point to get the three points. So, Interesting. Unbeaten run is not necessarily a good thing. Sasha, you spent much of the afternoon uh, at Stamford Bridge observing Maurizio Sarri, judging by your Twitter feed. <laughs> you, you kept filming him. No, I, I took a couple of pictures. The guys in front of me were filming him okay. constantly. Uh, but it's quite, um, it's quite nice at Stamford Bridge that we, we get seats right behind the benches. So he has these three stooges... Um, behind them, three members of the coaching staff that are constantly encouraging, like they were really encouraging when Barkley was coming on, constantly haranguing the referee if they're calls a different way and there's like his three cheerleaders. But overall, um, I it's just fascinating that he's non-celebrations, the, his bits of frustration and just observing him in action. And he is so much calmer at least outwardly, I think inwardly he probably isn't, than Conte. And there's just such a complete sort of different different aura about him. And one thing he was um, actually not 100% happy with is this, this. he spoke after the game several times uh, about motivation and determination in matches because he said, look, today it was brilliant, um, but we need to do this every other time, obviously alluding to games like Wolves um, because he's, he was definitely impressed with the team's performance, but I think he still raises questions about whether the application is generally in this Chelsea team for games that are not big games. Do you know what the biggest question mark of that game was for me? Mm-hmm. It was Pep Guardiola's cardigan. It was something straight out of <laughs> the CNA so... catalogue, wasn't it? Well, I, is it? Well, it does... it's, it's, I'm curious. Is he sponsored? Is it a friend of his who's designed it? I'm not saying because it looks so bad, but he's, he's wearing it. Yeah, uh, r- relentlessly, whatever the conditions, and plainly the rain on Saturday was not ideal for sporting knitwear on the sideline. Well, it was the type of jumper that you unwrap on Christmas Day and pretend to be happy with. Well, it, bear in mind, and he's coming at this from an entirely different sartorial angle. He is Catalan. They do yeah. things differently over there. Yeah, and the majority of the time he gets it very right, you know. But that that wasn't that was very wrong. But I imagine he was being paid to wear it. That can be the only explanation, surely. Hmm. I don't know if you saw uh, one of, it's funny you mentioned Sarri's backroom staff, one of them had a bit of a squabble with Guardiola at full time. They had a bit of a handshake and Guardiola kind of pushed him away. Yeah. Kind of the Mark Hughes spirit. Do you know what that was about? No, I don't. But it's interesting because after uh, Barkley scored that equaliser against Manchester United, there was a commotion with his backroom staff, wasn't there? And Sarri had to apologise. So it's twice in two big games where they got a result. And it's funny because, I mean, I was was chatting to a guy at Chelsea who was um, writing the profiles for some of these backroom staff for a programme or something. And... He was saying there's no information on the internet on these guys. They've just kind of come from nowhere, plucked from the kind of Italian lower leagues. I know Sarri, you know, that's the situation for him. But these guys are really quite inexperienced, some of them. I mean, clearly very capable. But I just wonder whether they're getting carried away by the, the thrills of being in a Premier League with fans and the crowd and everything. Right. Just yeah. on the last point on Manchester City, um, there is one aspect of that game that I know will really, really, really irritate Pep Guardiola. And that would be Leroy Zane's attention 
that he was paying or wasn't paying to Ungolo Kante for that first goal. That is the type of detail mm. that will drive him absolutely potty because he mentioned after the game that it was a great game. This was Champions League level. And I know for a fact, having listened to him so many times go on about this sort of thing, he means that exact attention to detail in that match. That is the type of moment that could see City knocked out of the Champions League again. That will really, really, really irritate so him. it was Leroy Sané who should have been picking yes. up... N'Golo Kante when he yes. N'Golo and then And then later on, Leroy Zane was taken off early in the game with uh, City chasing it. Quick word, David Silva, how, what's the entity of his injury? I haven't seen that, I'm afraid, but I thought he was also culpable for the goal. He got oh, really? attracted to the ball and left Kante completely free. Right. I thought City got a lot worse when Sano went off. I know he was he was caught offside a couple of times, but he was the only one making runs in behind. And after right. that, they switched Sterling to that flank, and he spent most of the time just standing around, to be honest. I don't think there was enough incision there. Well, one thing I would say, though, about not picking, not picking up Kante, um, Sarri said after the game, Kante scored by chance. He wasn't really supposed to be scoring goals. Well, fair enough. Um, just on the subject of Raheem Sterling, though, the other big thing to mention is uh, the horrible business, so the abuse he was receiving from, I think, what, three? Uh, was, I think it was mainly it was three, but I think it was one guy, wasn't it? Right. Mm, and I don't know if any definitive transcript lip readers have provided or anything like that, but it seems pretty clear also from Raheem's own reaction and the, the excellent post that he put up on Instagram on on Sunday morning, what the nature of this abuse was. And it's funny how a lot... I mean, this is something that Daniel Story in particular has talked about a lot in this pod. I was tremendously impressed by Raheem's statement on the subject on Sunday. I'm really impressed by Raheem Sterling. Um, we've, I've interviewed him numerous times, both at Liverpool and at Manchester City. And to, to see him mature and grow as a person over that time uh, and and he's not naturally a superstar, you know. He's not got the personality or the character, really, that that naturally would suit that sort of role. He's actually quite shy, uh, very polite, always um, in in coming into the interview, shaking hands with people and all that sort of thing. Which not every single player does. Uh, you won't be surprised to hear, but. To see him stand up like this, I thought was very, very impressive. And considering his age, considering the amount of uh, of stick that he gets, generally speaking, I think it's really important that he's done so as well. Because whilst he's probably not trying to be a leader or a pioneer or any of those things, he is actually becoming that because because he's becoming a figurehead for for a new, renewed movement on this. And and something needs to be done with it. Something needs to change. Difficult the four of us in this room to talk from any sort of informed perspective on this because of our backgrounds um i've never been the subject of racism ever in my life i've been the subject of prejudice at different points nothing major um in in the way that that sterling's had to suffer with it but clearly if a young black player feels like this in english football in 2018 there's an enormous amount of work to be done on the subject so man city dropped points all the rest of the top five win Man United goes sixth with a big win over Fulham. We'll touch on that later on. Spurs had a victory at Leicester with Kane and Eriksson watching on on the bench. It was bold from Pochettino. Arsenal did Huddersfield at the Emirates. 21 games unbeaten now. And what a goal from Lucas Torreira. You can see who he's been playing alongside for a couple of years in Genoa. Michael. Ah, yes. Yeah. yes good well, a great bicycle kick, though, no? Yeah, it was. A very composed finish. It was a funny game from Arsenal. Surprised, very surprised by the team shape. They went 3-5-2 to kind of match Huddersfield with Aubameyang and uh, Lacazette up front and no attacking midfielders, really. No creative midfielders aside from Torreira, who plays a little bit deeper. And then completely changed the system at half-time, brought on Uwobi and Mkhitaryan. 
Not sure it really solved much, really. Arsenal's best two chances came before half-time. Um, and it was another you know, Arsenal win where they didn't particularly impress. But they have defended well in recent weeks. I mean, they haven't really been conceding chances. We'll have to see whether that continues next week because they've got uh, Mustafi and Socrates both out. Uh, uh, and holding as well. Suspended and holding injured as well. Right. So. They're away at Southampton next week, Michael. Yes. Just saying. <laughs> who don't, right, who cool. don't score many, so maybe they won't have a well, problem. Well, they create a lot of chances. New new, new wind of change blowing through the dusty halls of you know, St Mary's, etc. Now, attention anyway, before all that turns to what's going to happen this midweek, and in particular, can Spurs and Liverpool book their places in the last 16? That's enough of that. Uh, so loads of teams are already through... Almost all the teams are already through. Yeah, so, OK, you've got seven teams on this final match day. Seven teams battling, Ian, for four spots. Uh, Napoli, PSG and Liverpool, two of those three will make it through. As it stands, Napoli are top of that group. One point ahead of PSG with Liverpool three points behind the Neapolitans. Uh, Spurs and Inter are both on seven points behind Barcelona, who are already mathematically top of the group. And in City's group, City is through. Who's going to go through with them? It's either going to be Leon, who are on seven points, or Shakhtar, who are on five, and who face each other this midweek. So that's a exciting head-to-head, isn't it? Uh, but not quite as exciting as Spurs going to Barcelona, needing a win. We've got Alvaro Romeo of Tuxport International standing by to tell us about Tottenham's prospects. Hola, muy bien, James. How are you? Excellent. All right. Uh, it's a very dramatic match day six and Barcelona are hosting Spurs and it's absolutely huge for Tottenham. Barcelona are already through. Alvaro, how seriously will they take this game? It's still to be seen because uh, what happened last week in the Copa del Rey round um, gave Valverde a little, a little reason to trust on the youngsters. Alenia, Ricky Puig... Uh, Denis Suarez and some other players uh, played really well and uh, perhaps they will have another chance uh, this uh, week against the Spurs. So I think that uh, we will know very soon, but the, the key point here is how seriously Barcelona is going to take this game if they want to keep the good form that they have been having since the international break and also what will happen with Ousmane Dembélé, whether, whether he will feature or not because I don't know if you're aware of this but on Sunday morning he turned up two hours late in the training uh, this is not the first time that it's happening with the French player and uh, I really want to see what Ernesto Valverde does uh, with him ahead of the game against the Spurs. Right, so a uh... Best case scenario for Spurs, Dembele gets dropped and uh, Valverde goes with the kids. Messi, though, is probably going to be on the field? Mm, I would say it's possible because uh, he is not fully fit yet, despite the great game he did against Espanyol, scoring a brace uh, via a free kick. And... uh, he may have a chance against the Spurs. And also Lionel Messi has uh, his personal Champions League agenda this season, especially after having finished fifth in the Ballon d'Or. And as you know, uh, 
currently the Ballon d'Or award is all about the uh, big occasions and Champions League obviously gives Lionel Messi another occasion to shine. So I wouldn't be surprised if Lionel Messi plays and I wouldn't be surprised if uh, he makes the difference again against the Spurs as he did uh, last Saturday in which he was absolutely spectacular uh, running the game again. I think that he wanted to make a statement on the pitch about how much he disagreed with being fifth in the Ballon, Ballon d'Or uh, nominations and awards. No, I, I can imagine he would do. Barcelona's recent home record, by the way, in the Champions League, played 28, won 26, drawn two, lost none. No English club has beaten them there since Liverpool 11 years ago. Doesn't look that good, does it? Although, of course, Spurs might be all right if Inter don't get the win at home to PSV, which is in you know, knowing Inter, that would be just just like them. Uh, but but anyway, we'll say, what, what's your prediction? What, what do you think is going to happen, Alvaro? Well, I think that uh, Barcelona is a slightly favourite uh, for this game. But at the same time, this has been a really strange season for Barcelona because they topped the table only with 31 points after 15 games in La Liga, which is not a huge collection of points. However, in Champions League, they are doing the job. They have been inconsistent domestically, but they are up for the big occasions. They have beaten Real Madrid, Spurs, Sevilla, Inter, all of them in a style. And I think that Barcelona comes as a favorite for this game. But of course, we have to remember that little asterisk. Perhaps Ernesto Valverde will plump for youngsters and then Tottenham will have a bigger chance. Ah, Christmas. The time of generosity, great food, terrible television, even worse jumpers and a packed Premier League fixture list. And nobody does generosity at Christmas like Paddy Power. We're giving money back as a free bet on at least one game in every round of fixtures. The only people paying out as much this Christmas will be Man United when they inevitably terminate their manager's contract. Ah, you'd be a turkey to bet anywhere else. Paddy Power, enough of that nonsense. Applies to first bet on all losing goal scorer, correct score and waters paddy bets. Max refund £10. T's and C's apply. 18 plus. Be gamble talk. On Spotify, smart speaker and podcast platforms everywhere, this is the Totally Football Show from Muddy Knees Media. Slightly favourites, Barca. It was interesting, isn't it? 4-0, of course, they won at the weekend. That was the Catalan derby against Espanyol, who are Mauricio Pochettino's former side. So, adding a little bit of spice to this game. How about Messi's first free kick in particular, no? Yeah, they were great. I mean, the first one was better, but I quite like the second one because it was the other side and it was almost like the goalkeeper had been spooked by the first one and just got himself into a terrible position for the second. I, th- I think he also mistimes his dive a little bit, so I think, yeah, the keeper's already on the back foot. But I actually enjoyed uh, Dembele's goal mm. because uh, Messi spent about half a minute on the edge of the box getting tackled and wriggling out of tackles, wriggling out of tackles, and played the perfect assist. So uh, if, if, if he's like that injured... Whew, with his motivation. I think Spurs have been slightly unlucky with the fixtures yeah. for this because it's Barcelona are playing Tuesday and then Sunday, so they don't really have to rest players. If it had been Wednesday and Saturday, and consider that their weekend game is going away to Levante, who they don't have a good record at, with the only team who beat them in the league all last season, they probably would have rested more players, but I'm, I'm not sure I can see it. I, I think, Although I think, they've been quite fortunate in having the away game at Barcelona after the Catalans have already qualified. That is a fair point, yeah. Okay, um... Messi finishing fifth in the Ballon d'Or. Ian, you sometimes give us noises to describe your feelings about events in world football. Yeah. Have you got one for that? Exactly, yeah, that's nice. Uh, right. Spurs, of course, themselves rested players this weekend and won at Leicester, I mentioned before, Ericsson and Kane. Uh, both uh, sat watching on the sidelines. Lovely goal from Sun, who's now on three goals in four games. And then Deli Alley 
Getting his 50th goal for Spurs and he's only 22. That is shocking. And it was almost identical to his first goal. Yes. For Spurs. Curious, his first goal ever for Spurs. Yeah, at yeah. that end at Leicester, back post header. Oh, was it Leicester as well, was it? Yeah, yeah, same end of the ground. Yeah, yeah. Damn, that's freaky. Freaky. The Son goal was fantastic. I mean, not just the technical quality in itself, but the fact it's with his weaker foot. I mean, I don't think many players in the Premier League can strike the ball as well with both feet, especially the way he did that. It wasn't just a blast. It was real whip of a shot. Fantastic. I, I quite like to compliment Sissoko in the build-up to that goal because Sissoko drove from midfield, disoriented the Leicester defence, and I think that left Son with a bit of space to work with, I think. Mm. Can Spurs do it? I hope so. It could be a coming-of-age type performances for Spurs in the Champions League because it's never quite happened for them under Pochettino. So I really hope that they do something in this in this game and can make it through. All right, well lot riding as well on the other game in that group, which is Inter hosting Pierce. We'll hear more about that in a second or two. But Liverpool, third in their group. But I think most people would have them as favourites to go through, even though they're three points behind the leaders. Napoli, because the Neapolitans have to come to Anfield. And of course, Liverpool have looked so devastating there, especially in the, the Champions League. What about Napoli? Well, they also warmed up with a 4-0. Uh, but how did their opponents, Frosinone, match up against Bournemouth? Uh, let's ask that and other questions to James Horncastle. Well, Napoli are in great form uh, going into this game. You mentioned uh, their win at the weekend, 4-0 against Frosinone, and that was really with the second string um, side that um, I think shows that they've got a lot of contributors who can come off the bench and, and, and help them um, at Anfield. I think what was really encouraging about that game as well, you saw Arcadius Milik, he, he scored a brace, um, and Fauzi Goulan, who was given the captain's armband, one of the best left-backs in Europe when fit, um, started, uh, laid on two goals. Um, so I think this game is, again, going to be uh, a test of Ancelotti's ability um, to, to keep his players calm under pressure. And I think he's the best manager at that um, across Europe. I think that's what's distinguished him at, uh, at Real Madrid when they won La Decima, uh, when he was at Milan. And uh, he had a wry smile at the weekend because uh, it was pointed out to him that he has quite a history with Liverpool going back to, to Istanbul in, in 2005 and Athens in 2007. He just liked to remind everyone that he actually won the Premier League uh, with Chelsea at Anfield um, against Liverpool. And uh, I think it's that kind of serenity um, that Ancelotti is able to transmit uh, to his players, which I think has already kind of made a difference to this team in Europe because put on a tactical masterclass against Liverpool at the San Paolo. Um, they were brilliant in Paris against uh, PSG at the Parc de France. They deserved to win that game. It was only a sort of Mario Rui own goal and a worldie from Angel Di Maria in stoppage time that uh, saw them pegged back. So I think they're going into this game, you know, with confidence, obviously with two results out of three. Uh, if they win, if they draw, they're through. Lots of permutations in terms of if they lose. Um, so I think he's passing all that kind of information to the players so they, they can go out and just perform as they usually do. The last Italian visitors to Anfield at the tail end of last season, Roma, went to pieces in quite spectacular fashion. Yeah, no, I was I was there for that game, and I, I think that, yeah, this is this is what keeps coming up. It's the it's the Anfield effect. The 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 can you keep your your nerve? Because I think um, it's easy to get swept away um, to lose um, the kind of lucidity that you need um, on nights like these to 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 sort of essentially execute your game plan. 
But as I said, I don't think um, there's anyone better than that um, than than Carlo Ancelotti. Um, Insigne has also been very good um, in big games in Europe. We saw him get the winner against uh, Liverpool in October. Um, he was very good in, in Paris. He scored goals, um, you know, back when they played Dortmund in Real Madrid uh, away from home as well. Um, and he's in sort of the best form of his his career. The kind of moves that Ancelotti made in that game in October really confounded Liverpool. They showed they were able to evade Liverpool's press um, better than I think uh, a lot of people expected. Liverpool had zero shots on target uh, in that game. And that was the first time that had ever happened in, in Jurgen Klopp's, what, 177 games in charge. So... Even if they can just um, again keep the keep the shot count down and, and sort of um, I say restrain the likes of Salah and Mane on the counter attack, um, I think you know they they can definitely do something here. All right. Of course, they could both go through if PSG come unstuck away to Sasha. Cervena Zvezda. Exactly. As could. Uh, Spurs and Barcelona if Inter don't do what they're supposed to at home to PSV what, what, what do you think about Inter in Spurs' group James uh, hosting PSV now on paper they should win this but Inter <laughs> yeah I take your point James I think that's that's the big worry about Inter is that they, they should take care of business here they should win and you, you maybe think that um, they'll that it'll get into their heads a bit um, and that the permutations will play on their minds and it will it will affect them. Um, I mean, going back to Friday's game, I thought they played very well for an hour uh, against uh, Juventus. They certainly had the better chances. I mean, that's been the story of, of their month, really. Um, they've they've played well in big games against Spurs and Barcelona, um, but ultimately haven't got uh, the results that they've needed in those. And um, you, you pick up Gazetta this morning, and they're they're reflecting on on some of the reaction to Mario Icardi going to the Super Classico at the Santiago Bernabeu yesterday. What just less than forty eight hours um, between now and this uh, this huge game uh, for Inter, and uh, and that's yeah, that's obviously provoked some anger uh, among fans. Not really what a captain should be doing ahead of a uh, a big game, but um, they've impressed in Europe um, so far this season. I think they've been better than I expected. Um, so, you know, with I think 65,000 at San Siro behind them, again, that, um, that atmosphere there has, has really pushed them to get results that I don't think they were expecting, particularly against, against Spurs uh, back in September. So, yeah, they're a, they're, uh, they're a much better side than I think a lot of people anticipated them to be in, in, uh, in Europe this year. James Horncastle, is, that, is it fair to say, it was certainly read this way in Italy, that Carlo gave Jürgen a bit of a lesson last yeah, time. So it's, it's, it's the extra half defender, half midfielder in Calihon. Um, his position out wide, plus bypassing the midfield that confused Liverpool. But I think in the context of this season, the Liverpool away performances in Europe have been weirdly terrible. Like real play, they played really badly in Belgrade, probably a bit better in Paris, but still nowhere near you'd expect them to. So it feels to me almost as if you know they sort of not not didn't bother with those away games but maybe thought we'll just do it all at home um, and I would expect Liverpool to be much much better at Anfield uh, on Tuesday and also these sort of final group games Liverpool haven't always won them I mean there's defeats against Fiorentina there's defeats against Basel but you know the emotional win over Olympiacos last season alright it wasn't against a very good team but they had to beat Spartak Moscow to beat them 7-0 and absolutely you know made, made a really big statement so We'll see how much of a calming effect Ancelotti can have on his players, but certainly at some stage, uh, Liverpool will have a 10-minute crazy spell and we'll see how Napoli stand up to that. Oof, hey? 
All right. Fighting talk. Fighting talk. Of course, as I say, they could both go through if PSG come unstuck in Belgrade, where Napoli could only draw, and where Liverpool, of course, lost, and PSG had the weekend off. Uh, this last weekend because the Yellow Jackets mess in, in France or their game and several other ones were postponed and, uh, you know, that's I don't think that's good preparation. Disrupted their build-up. And anyway, th- that atmosphere in Belgrade, I can see it getting to Neymar and the likes. <laughs> uh, well, we'll see. We'll see, eh? But a Liverpool fans commented after the game. It was, no, it was, it was remarkably good, uh, the atmosphere in the, in the Zvezda Stadium at the Maracanã. And it was actually a nice touch after the game. Um, Liverpool fans were kept behind and their whole sort of hardcore ultras on the home side uh, stayed behind as well. And the people were thinking, uh-oh. And then they were all just singing singing at each other, you know, trading chants, which was quite oh, nice. That's nice. All right, let's just finish off then with a prediction. Biggest game of the season so far for Liverpool. Are they going to do it, Sasha? I'd say 1-0. So Liverpool goes... 1-0 takes them through, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, um, it does. It does. OK, and what about Spurs? I don't think Spurs will do it. Oh, OK, um, Ian... I think Liverpool will. I don't think Spurs will. Michael? I think Liverpool will with an Ospina error. <laughs> I don't know if Ospina will be playing. It might they be will? Merritt. Oh. Merritt, who they've been waiting for. And uh, apparently he's, not, he's going to be the number one. OK, well, I'll take it back then. Then it, Liverpool won't do it. <laughs> <laughs> and Spurs? Uh, I think Spurs can actually. I, I, I think Barcelona might switch off. OK, there you go. Well, I hope so. We plough on after this by returning to the ever-exciting Premier League. Ian, we'll hear all about what you got up to on Saturday, watching Man United take on Fulham. Listeners, have you read The Economist recently? Well, because you listen to The Totally Football Show, you can get yourself a free copy of The Economist right now. Free. Just text the word FOOTBALL to 78070. The Economist isn't just about economics. For over 170 years, it's been a one-stop weekly roundup of the news with a collection of thought-provoking columns on every significant region in the world. It gives you a level of detail and depth about politics and business, science, technology and the arts that you just won't find in the national newspapers. And there's even a bit of football in there too. For example, last week there was a feature on the impact of Brexit on British football. Unless the rules are changed, they pointed out, all foreign players will face the same hurdles after Brexit that non-Europeans must currently clear. Ouch. It's things like that that help economist readers prepare for what's going on in the world around them, a world in which facts count even more than ever. The Economist is the smart guide to the forces changing your world. Get your free print copy now. Just text FOOTBALL to 78070. That's FOOTBALL to 78070. Lambs against wolves. (laughs) That's how Ranieri described it. Ian, I'm talking about Man United... Fulham, the match which saw the return of the great entertainers to Old Trafford. <laughs> Good to have you back, Jose, and your freewheeling, free-scoring United side. Lukaku in the team, 20 shots. Mood described in the first half as beautiful and perfect. Yeah. It's grand, isn't it? Weird. Um, the best way I can sum it up was we had Ashley Young in for the post-match interview in the tunnel afterwards, and my first question to him was, I've not really been able to say this to many Manchester United players this season, but did you actually enjoy that? Because it looked like it. Um, because it, everyone just had a smile on their face. Uh, and basically, Young turned around and just said, well, yeah, we were all smiling. We all enjoyed it. We were scoring goals. Of away from Mourinho. <laughs> we were playing well. Um, I'm not biting, James. Um, and it, just, it was just a bit different. Um, and it was a continuation from Arsenal as well. And, and perhaps... Perhaps it's a barometer of of the way the season's gone that 
that United fans could be so excited about a two-all home draw against Arsenal. But there was qualities in that match that continued in the Fulham match that actually made them both an enjoyable watch. Okay. You know, and, and I, I think there's a big thing as well about if a team draws or loses and fans are watching it, they can accept it more if they're seeing maximum effort, if they're seeing their players giving absolutely everything. And it it just felt like maybe it was only moments against Fulham because they only needed to, because by the way, Fulham were, were really poor. I think Ranieri's got a big job on his hands there. Um, but it, it was more enjoyable from United. There, there was more energy in it. There was more, there was more running in it. These are basic qualities, but judging by the way things have gone they're qualities that, that need to be cherished now so mm. it sets up Liverpool quite nicely at, le- at least they've got some sort of um, confidence and some sort of, of, of raised morale going into that game Right well, uh, I was going to say who else is in the tank I sure won't do that um, Yeah uh, Fulham and a Fulham side reduced to 10 men so you know a little bit of perspective and Odoi had a bit of a well he had a Difficult afternoon. Yeah, I was surprised at that selection um, from from Ranieri to to move him out to right back when he was likely to face Rashford or, or Anthony Martial if he was fit. Um, and he got nutmeg by Ashley Young for the first goal, sort of as well. Does it count if it hits the player's leg? I mean, yeah, yeah. Would Doesn't you it? still count that as a nutmeg? Yeah, yeah I would. Yeah. yeah, at school we used to sort of undo that if it hit the player's leg. Yeah, it's not a pure nutmeg, That's is cool. it? Well, you like to see it go straight through, don't you? Really, to, to take a touch, to sort of shout at someone that don't count if. They shouted nutmeg after that on Megs or whatever. Anyway, I digress. Um, yeah, it, it, it just just wasn't much about Fulham in that game. Um, I did Fulham at, at the Etihad Stadium as well, which obviously was under Jukanovic, and it was a similar sort of fair, really. They just, they just sort of turned up, you know. Um, United 3-0 up at half-time, and then, and then Ranieri made changes, and they were better in the second half. It felt like the Mitrovic change in particular was just really giving him a rest, considering he's played so much. And uh, and they had more winnable matches um, than being three 0 down at, at half time. But yeah, there's not much about them really. Okay, yeah. and Mourinho making sure that Pog was really rested for the Liverpool game. <laughs> well, he's starting against Valencia. Mourinho's confirmed. Is he? Okay. Yeah, but Pog has got an issue here. Um, it just it's quite a statement in a way. But United just look better without him at the moment. Um, going forward as well, they look better without him. Has um, he become Man United's Ozil? Well, he's not played as many hours of Fortnite, so he's not quite at Ozil levels yet. Um, did you see that story? So he's got a back Champion injury, and, and they're linking it to the fact that he's spent something like well, it's 72. It's not the first time this has happened. David James, I think, had a PlayStation-related illness or injury. <laughs> well, sleep no, it wasn't an injury. He, he just said his concentration was was suffering because he was staying up too late and playing okay. video games. Well, Rio Ferdinand did injure himself picking up the remote. Yeah. Whether that was for accessing the <laughs> the right HDMI for his sure. console, sure. I don't know. But yeah, on Pogba, um, he, he should be in that team. He should be flourishing in that team. And it's still this question mark, isn't it? And he seems to talk about it all the time, but... Um, he has a real issue now because United certainly in those last two games have ran more Herrera and Matic have actually complemented each other well in midfield it's given the defence a greater protection which has been a real issue for them and the intelligence against Fulham of, of the movement and interaction between Lingard and Mata was actually a, a key a key component in that game can we talk about Diego Dolo as well Okay, like a breath of fresh air pro- oh, yeah? playing at right back mm. right back for Manchester United attacking putting in good balls good crosses a um, little bit of a question mark still over him going the other way, but he is he is very young. Um, but yeah, he, he just looks an improvement on what's been there. 
All right. this season. Well, Fulham then in all sorts of trouble, still bottom, and next up they have a, a London derby with a resurgent West Ham. Let's take a look now at the, the battle at the bottom. It's seven teams really in that relegation mix. You've got Fulham and Saints with Huddersfield a point above them. That's the bottom three. Then above them, Burnley and Crystal Palace, two points above the drop. Then Newcastle a point better off and Cardiff a point ahead of them. Only two of that group of seven won this weekend. Burnley, who welcome back James Tarkovsky... And uh, three points as well. They beat Brighton, climbing all the way to 17th, as I mentioned. Uh, Brighton's away form perhaps had something to do with this this, this, uh, this result. Tarkovsky back, that's big though, isn't it? Because he, he scored as well. Yeah, I mean, didn't do much for the goal. Just hit his chest and went in. Mm. But uh, yeah, defensively, they've been a bit of a shambles. Ben Mee hasn't been having a good time. It was a terrible game, this. I mean, it was, was just it? A, it was okay. all about set pieces. Um, but that suits... Burnley, really. Okay. Brighton's away from, by the way, two wins in 22. Cardiff, the other side from the group down the bottom, to get a victory. They beat Saints, and then you manage a rough Harlson Huttle at 1 0. That's their third straight win at home, is it? Of Cardiff, Neil, Neil Warnock, and uh, no wins in 12 now for Southampton. Callum Patterson again with the goal for Cardiff. In other teams down that end of the table, news Newcastle lost to Wolves amid. Much unhappiness at St James's Park. Rafa was busy playing "Give Us a Clue" on the sideline, <laughs> um, and and fans I think were up. They, they felt it was unfair. Wolves taking a win in that game. I, I got to hold my hands up. Didn't see the game. Any of you see the game? Do you know what? I don't. I don't like this now. This VAR uh, reference all the time because it's. Co- uh, yes, we probably should have had it now, maybe because of the success of the World Cup and so on. But are we going to actually reference it every single time a decision doesn't I go someone's know. way? It seems. It feels like that, you know. And, and I think if you look at the elbow, it's open to interpretation, even with VAR, whether there is intention there or not. So I don't think it would solve it. I think the the sending off is interesting in terms of VAR because. It's quite a tough decision for the referee to make at that angle. I always think when you're watching it live, it's very obvious whether someone is the last man or not. But if you're the referee and you're sprinting to chase up with someone, you're 20 yards behind, you don't have the angle. That's the kind of thing where I think almost every decision of that kind will, well, VAR look at it automatically. But that's the kind of thing where it's easier for us at home to see than the referee. As for Wolves, beaten by Cardiff a week ago, they've now beaten Chelsea and brought three points back from St James's Park. Is this because he's finally started to change his formation because you remember he used the same team for about yeah. first three months no I don't think it is actually I mean I was on here last week and I said I don't think Wolves are doing much wrong and I think they've pretty much played at the same level in most games this this season sometimes they've got the breaks and sometimes they haven't what they do have over or what they have had over the last two games is goals from Jota his first two of the season mm-hmm. he was also crucial in uh, the sending off and he was also the man who assisted Doherty mm. for the winner and again I keep on going on about Matt Doherty but I think he might be my player of the season, actually. You know, not actually the highest level of every player, but in terms of someone who's been unexpectedly good, mm. every game he's there, close to their best player. I think he's fantastic. He's impeccable exciting, timing. Impeccable yeah. timing in terms of arriving from the wing there. Yeah, very nice. Palace had a 3-2 defeat at West Ham. They are, as we mentioned, two points from the drop. Roy Hodgson now leading the sack race. Hmm. But what he, can he do, you know? He looked miserable at the end, poor chap. Do you, yeah. do you not look at that and think... Is it worth it, Roy? No, because he loves it, doesn't he? Does he, he loves being in football. And I don't understand really what what more he can do. The goals they considered this weekend were were fantastic long ranges. Mm. I think the defence has been okay by and large. I think they're playing decent possession football. He's turned to this system that makes sense with Zaha and Townsend up front, but they just don't have a clinical striker. I'm not quite sure 
what you'd expect a new manager to come in and do with this with the squad they've got. I think he's doing a decent job with a very unbalanced squad. They've got four strikers and none of them have scored. I mean that that is that there's your problem right there. Pretty I, much. I also carry on buying on about this, but I don't think Maya is a is a winger. I don't know what he's doing out there. Um, why not just move Saha Zaha back there? Even if you don't have a striker, I think Zaha is more dangerous coming in from the left. Certainly much more dangerous than Maya. Um, but I think what then uh, sort of looking at the dynamic of the game against West Ham, what then did them was one back heel. So um, Philippe Anderson backheels it down the line into loads of space to Masuaku and Palace collapse eventually. Um, so I wonder basically how, you know, if Tim carries on losing, the confidence is very, very, very shaky. Um, so once things started going on against them, they just folded. What Love tremend- the goals though. What a tremendous f- little finish from Javier Hernandez as well. Oh yeah, Was I mean, that your favourite of the three? I think it probably was in a way. Um, I know the other ones were more spectacular. Well, Mark but Noble was making that point afterwards saying that... About how difficult the actual... Yeah. I mean, yeah, the finish, you know, and the way he readjusts and everything. Just the fact he was stood there on the end of the wall, the little sneaky bugger, you know. That is very old, old classic uh, Javier Hernandez to, to just be unnoticed, the little P. Sneaking in and and reacting and pouncing on a on a on a chance. I, I d- the finish was great. You know the way he readjusted was great. Just the fact he was even thought to stand there was great. I thought. Yeah, Felipe Anderson's was nice. As was uh, Robert Stonegar. Speaking of players you weren't expecting to do well this season, he'd fall into that category. For me, West Ham now uh, tenth, but they're only five points behind Man United in sixth. They've only lost one of their last seven, and that was against Man City, which can happen to well almost anyone. And uh, there you go, things looking a lot better in East London. Uh, there's one more game to go, and it's coming up Monday evening. Everton are playing... Watford. There you go. Marco Silva over Charleston Derby, isn't it? Of course. It? Of Oof. course. Well, we'll look forward to Tom looking Cleverly back on Derby. that. Hmm? Tom Cleverley Derby as well. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, a, it's a match redolent in storylines. and Sure. Exactly. Mm. All right, uh, let's uh, turn to one or two of your Twitter questions before we tackle the rather immense amount of international football and news this week. You're listening to the Totally Football Show, sponsors of Melchester Rovers. Find out more at RoyTheRoversOfficial.com. Peter Ladderfogged. Yep, that's right. There are several derbies in the MLS. We were talking last week about derbies named after roads. He says there are several derbies in the MLS, MLS, Peter, MLS, uh, with roads or road-based themes. There's the 401 derby, not the 405. There is the El Trafico, LAFC versus Galaxy. The best is the I-5 derby between Vancouver, Seattle and Portland. I remember uh, a few years back, Newcastle played Carlisle in a pre-season friendly, and they called it the Hadrian's Wall derby. Brilliant. I'm not sure whether that's geographically accurate, really, but I really like it. Okay. Producer Ben says that probably nowhere in the world will you get more road derbies than in Greece. Sure. Thanks, Producer Ben. Uh, M. Scadding says another football match named after a motorway is the F3 derby here in Australia between Central Coast Mariners and Newcastle Jets. The F3 brackets now the M1 connects the two clubs. Interesting. Oh, uh, also picking up on something from last week. Ian Makel says the striker who nicked the ball from Shea Given, we were talking about why that, uh, was it Lacazette who was trying to score? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it wasn't given. And Ian says the striker who nicked the ball from Shea Given in that famous instant was, of course, Dion Dublin, not, as David Priest said, Robbie Keane. This led to the amusing gag that Given was the only Irishman who didn't know where Dublin was. Badoom. (laughs) And indeed, Tish. Very nice. 
Thank you for all of those. Uh, it's been a wide world of football this weekend, Sasha. MLS, you probably saw. Did you see MLS Cup? Just the highlights, to be okay. honest. Okay, highlights like this. Almiron swinging in, Martinez on the backside of goal! Well, that's right. That's the sweet sound of Atlanta FC winning MLS Cup. 2-0 over Portland Timbers in front of a crowd. Michael, do you know how big the crowd was? It was big. That's correct. Uh, it was specifically 73,019 people Uh saw them picking up the MLS Cup in only their second year of existence. Goals from the MLS MVP, Joseph Martinez, who beat Liam Ridgewell. Hello, Liam. Uh, at the top of the box, then rounded, I'm reading a match brought Atinella to slot the ball into an empty net. Argentine defender Franco Escobar doubled the score in the 54th minute and all that. That crowd, by the way, that is larger than any of the last four Super Bowls. Wow. Really? Yeah. I mean, obviously, they could have got bigger if they held the Super Bowl in the Mercedes Dome or whatever it's called. I'm sure they get that credit as well. Still but it, it just, it, to put it in further perspective, 2015, the MLS Cup final had just over 20,000. Wow. So, pff, just I, saying. I think it's amazing that they managed to grow such a sort of big football club so quickly, somewhere like Atlanta. Mm. Um, we lived in Georgia. 25 years ago did you yeah and even during the world cup the one in america the one in america that okay. georgia in athens, athens georgia it's where rem are from um and uh, okay there was school football uh but beyond that you couldn't really imagine that there'd be anything beyond the falcons or the braves very big on their baseball over there and even during the world cup because this was in the run-up to 94 world cup didn't really make the news and no one really spoke about the football but quarter of a century later they can build this huge club there it's just I think the way they've managed to develop MLS is hugely hugely impressive mm, very nice uh, they've got one or two uh, bits of work to do over the off season though because they now wave goodbye to their manager Tata Martino who's probably going to take over Mexico and also playmaker and I think most people's league MVP Miguel Amiron who is kind of making a play for the Premier League. So we hear. By the way, on managerial front, the notion was that Jorge Sampaoli was going to be taking over, but there were reports this weekend that Alan Pardew was in Atlanta with a view to maybe, yeah, Alan Pardew. Yeah. Ian, you'd love that, wouldn't you? Handsome Pards back, yeah, of course. That'd be brilliant. More with Kobe Jones and company in the final TFS American edition of the season, which will be up very soon. Where should we go now in the wide world of football, Ian? Argentina. Spain. Argentina Madrid, or Spain, Madrid. rather. Spain, yeah. Spain, where Argentina relocated for the purposes of their biggest game ever. Copa Libertadores' final second leg, a ring of steel around the Bernabeu. Journalists apparently had to wear special wristbands, not just for the game, but from, from Friday night until after the match had finished on Sunday. I bet, they, I, bet they, I bet they'll be delighted to show <laughs> that off when they get home to everyone. Where have you been? Oh, yeah. It was an amazing atmosphere. How did the game live up to it, Michael? Yeah, it was okay. I mean, um, the problem with the Copa Libertadores is the sound isn't very good, basically. But it was an entertaining game. It was end-to-end. The first couple of goals that were scored both came from counter-attacks after the other team had a, had a good chance. And ended with, um, I mean, Boca got a man sent off. Then they got a uh, player had to go off injured. So they were down to nine men and uh, chucked literally all their... Well, all was, nine players forward and the goal was sealed uh, by Gonzalo Martinez, who basically had the free run of, 
the opposition half. Well, because their keeper had gone up at the other end and and he was uh, up there at the end for the last ten minutes. Was he? Yeah. yeah, it was amazing. And when he dropped back yeah. to his edge of his own box, he was kind of Cruyff turning on the edge. Yeah, of his exactly. Penalty. No, it was uh, this this massive. He's what he's six foot four. Esteban Andrade, the guy who had his jaw broken, came back for this game. I thought the confidence that he had in those last ten minutes. Okay, it's desperation. But it was hugely impressive. You know, like people come up for corners last minute. He was in that box with seven minutes to go attacking it. He nearly scored in the with the last corner. And it was actually very good goalkeeping from Armani to punch it away. That led to the breakaway. Was he better than Joe Hart against Newcastle the other week? I was blown away by the last five minutes. He showed more in that game creativity-wise and the rest of the Burnley team put together in those To, to be honest, I... you hipster. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Fans of celebrating too early will have enjoyed uh, Benedetto of uh, Boca and pulling that extraordinary gurning tongue out. <laughs> what was he doing? Bizarre. Oh. After he scored. But anyway, I mean, a lot of passion. Sometimes it spills over beyond the How norms of How much fun? But that was behavior. fun. Wasn't that fun? It was, it was fun. so fun. It was fun. <laughs> but not so much fun for Boca as they made their way home having been beaten 3-1. Meantime, in actual Spanish games in Spain, mentioned Barcelona, they beat Espanyols 4-0. Real Madrid got back into the top four. They're five points off the top. Between them and Barca... Uh, are Sevilla and Atletico Madrid, who are both a couple of points ahead of Real Madrid. In Germany, it was the Ruhr derby between Dortmund and Schalke. Who scored the winner, Michael? Didn't see. It was Jaden Sancho. Sancho. Oh, he did see. Yeah. And uh, with his sixth of the season, it was brilliant as well. Did you see the goal? I did. Uh, it was good. So he, he basically beats one guy, on the, on the bombing up the sideline, beats one guy, beats the second guy, passes it and gets it back again. And then d- delicious the way he slides it past the keeper. And then he... You could see it meant a lot. I mean, his celebration. Did, did you see the scene? I've seen it. Yeah, I've seen he the goal. I mean, seen it's such an emotional moment. I'm really, really pleased how it's going for him over there. Um, Reese Nelson as well. I, I just think there are fantastic examples to to young English footballers who are perhaps frustrated with the situations at Premier League clubs, even Championship clubs potentially, um, to to go and try something different, go and try something new, and and they are they are two great examples. Sancho in particular of what actually can be achieved by... I think it's quite a brave decision. It's not a path that well-trodden in modern times at all. So, you know, I think he's a great example now and I think other players will follow it, certainly. All right, Dortmund nine points ahead of Bayern who themselves had a victory 3-0 against Nuremberg. Uh, Lewandowski grabbing his 42nd brace in the top flight. In Scotland, much excitement last week. Kilmarnock going top of the Premiership. Are they still top now? No, no, they're not. They lost 5-1 at Celtic in what is just the latest development in an incredibly fascinating SPL season. Rangers failed to beat 10-man bottom-of-the-table Dundee on the weekend, but they still go second anyway with that point. What on earth does it all mean? Well, they'll try and explain that in the Totally Scottish Football Show, which will be available Monday night or Tuesday morning. The Totally Football League Show... Radically different title there will be available a little bit later on Tuesday. They'll no doubt be touching on subjects such as Norwich, Leeds perhaps, where the roof is on fire, Kamal roof, that is, Portsmouth being top of League One, and probably uh, Saul Campbell getting his first league outing in League Two, uh, Maxfield losing 1-0 to Colchester. Sasha, I know you are hot to talk about Syria and the, the the two Roman sides and and what happened to them this weekend. Which should we do first? Do you want to start off with Roma? Let's <laughs> start with Roma. Bless. So they're taking on Cagliari and they're two 0 up and cruising, which is just as well because Eusebio Di Francesco, their manager, is feeling the pressure a little bit. Five minutes to go, 
you know, I mean, it's all sorted. Points are in the bag, aren't they, Sasha? And then what happens? Corner comes in. Close range finish, 2-1. All uh, right. It's, game's over anyway, though, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Not, nothing's happening. 90 um, minutes gone. Fringe injury time. A ball comes into the box. It's a bit, a bit, bit of a tangle. Olsen gets kicked, I think, a little bit. The Roma keeper, uh, the yeah. The Roma keeper. And then there's an argument. A massive, massive argument. And there's two sendings off. Cagliari down to nine men. Yeah, deep into injury time. Yeah, and they're sent off as well, Moran. And uh, so because of all of the delay, there's time added on till about, I think, the 96th minute when with the, pretty much the last play of the game. Yeah, it's, I mean, goalkeeper, goalkeeper takes a free kick into the centre, one touch back, and the player runs through and uh, who, who was it who scored the... Uh, it's Marco Sao. Marco Sao. The delightfully talented uh, Marco Sao, yeah. Runs through and equalises uh, for nine-man Cagliari against Roma. In the 96th minute, brilliant. Lazio just about finished laughing at that when they had their game against Sampdoria. How did this one go? So Sam, Sam take the lead through Quagliarella, of course. And uh, Lazio then managed to equalise in the dying minutes. It's gone 90 minutes here as well. Lazio win a penalty, which uh, Chido Immobile puts away. And Sampa, of course, had a man sent off in the process of that penalty. It's like build up to the penalty, free kick, hits Mm. wall, penalty, goal. And so Lazio have bagged the three points. Brilliant. I mean, this is like a 99th minute now. Yeah. (laughs) And then... Hail Mary into the box. Gets... Hey, so how far out did that ball come in from? Oh, it's, it came in from uh, from Sampdoria's half. Yeah, uh, gets flicked on the edge of the box. Uh, I think Strakosha isn't sure whether to come or to go. Uh, defenders are not sure what to do, and it gets flicked in by so, uh, Saponara. It's Sap- not just flicked in, but he does this like incredible kind of aerial kick, kung yeah. fu side-footed volley thing. But and then said afterwards, "Oh yeah, I had my eyes closed the whole time. I just sort of <laughs> jumped and waved a leg at it." So they also drew. Um, yeah, they, there's been a, a little bit of tension in Rome. They were in a kind of what they call a retiro, you know, when everyone has mm. to go into training camp, they're like a lockdown. And Roma are going into that apparently this week as well. We'll see how much difference it, it makes. Of course, Roma also have Champions League. Lazio will be in Europa League action on Thursday. As James Horncastle was mentioning before, the big game this weekend was on Friday. It was the Derby d'Italia and Juve actually had a real game of it with Inter but they won 1-0 Mandzukic what a cross though what a cross for Mandzukic from uh, uh, Cancelo yeah. yeah how many times does Mandzukic score far post headers yeah. <laughs> every week it seems like incredible but, but to put it there on his head and this, like there was no space to deliver the cross it was brilliant mm. oh the other big news from uh, Syria that we should touch on quickly here is the fact that Cesare Prandelli is back in the game oh. yeah he's taken over at Genoa he's become their third manager of the season uh, they started out with Ballardini, then they went to Juric, and now... Um, did Juric actually pick up any points? I think he did, actually. I know he had a really tough run of games when he came in. It was They were facing like Inter and Juve and all that lot. It, I'm pretty sure it was under Juric that they held Juve to a draw. Ah. Uh, but anyway, this... Apart from the fact that it's great to have Prandelli back in the game, although, as James Horncastle was pointing out on Galazzo, he does always seem to pick the wrong club these days. His previous club was Al Nasser. He was at Al Nasser. Was 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 Al Nasser in UAE, uh, who now have Johan Kabay and Alvaro Negredo playing for them. Do they? Yeah, okay. I, uh, I watched one of the games on, on holiday. It doesn't All right. seem a fantastically well-thought-out appointment. Though, no. though, who? Really? Gener- well, when you get into your third manager of the season in December, yeah. the planning... Sort of phase has, has gone. I think, I think you, should, you should meet Gabriele Marcotti. I think he has a few views on this. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, it's something we touched on in last week's Golazzo, actually, which is very much still available. We, we talk about the team that managed to get through eight managers in one season. Oh. Not too long ago. Um, 
It does mean, though, Prandelli arriving, that for the first time in 10 years, all Serie A's managers are Italians. That is very oh. interesting, oh. actually. There you go. I'm glad. I'm glad. Anyway, right, so that's all of that then. Time to get the odds on some of the midweek Champions League fixtures and more, courtesy of producer Ben and Paddy Power. Thank you, Jimbo. Hello, listeners. Lee Price is on the line. He's from Paddy Power. Lee, what's been your favourite bit of the show today? You've been listening in intently, as always. Oof, a tough choice, but I think Jimbo's thorough explanation of just how Liverpool get through has made things crystal clear for me, so I'll go for that. Yeah, me too. Love a bit of permutation. Anyway, uh, let's talk about Liverpool. Give us their title odds after they went top of the league this weekend. Can they stay there till the till the end of May? They're top of the table, but they're second in the betting for the Premier League, uh, despite being top of the table. It's 2-5 to five still that Man City win the Premier League. Liverpool are 5-2. to two. That's pretty chunky for a team that's top of the standings, but like every pundit in the world, we're still back in Man City. Speaking of permutations, Liverpool are taking on Napoli in the Champions League this week. Um, give us the odds on what's going to happen in that one. Yeah, it's complicated, but here's what we've got. It's odds on they win the game, which is 4-7, to seven, which would be a good start. Napoli are pricey 4-1 to one to win away from home. To win 1-0, which would see them through, is 15-2. to two, Or to win by two goals, which would also see them qualify, is 7-2. to two. That said, we make them third in our betting to qualify from Group C at 4-5 to five behind PSG and Napoli. Uh, and it's 9-2 to two Liverpool before a miracle and top the group. If it does go terribly wrong, they are likely to be favourites to win the Europa League. Uh, currently, that's Chelsea at 4-1. to one. Liverpool will be a better price than that. I've just about followed that, but uh, give me something a bit more simple. You've got a money-back special running on this yeah, game. Yeah, this is much simpler. Money-back as a free bet at Liverpool win. That applies to losing first, last, anytime goal scorers, correct score and what odds paddy markets. Max refund £10. T&Cs apply. T's and C's always apply, Lee. And T's and C's apply to Spurs as well. We haven't forgotten you, Tottenham fans. Uh, Can they do the business against Barcelona and go through to this last 16 in the Champions League? It's a humongous ask, isn't it? Uh, They're 5-4 to to qualify from the group. Uh, Similarly, third in the betting for that group there. Inter Milan are ahead of them and they're comfortably odds on to go through. So we don't think so for Spurs. They're 9-4 to to beat Barcelona in the new Camp. It's evens the home side triumph or 3-1 to for the draw. You can find out those odds and more at paddypower.com. All prices are accurate at the time of recording. 18 plus only, be gambleaware.org. And when the fun stops, stop. So we're back on Thursday when we'll be joined by Pat Nevin and, as we heard earlier, Alvaro Romeo and James Horncastle. Anything else you want to mention before we stop, Michael? Can I just say I enjoyed Marcus Rashford's goal because of the fact that he wasn't even meaning to put the ball into a shooting position. The wind just kept on blowing it onto his right foot. I can't recall that. So he's against Fulham. Yeah, yeah. I didn't see anyone mention it, but it was really odd. Twice he touched it and the ball just blew away from him onto his right foot. So he's like, oh, I might as well have a shot then. And I think the wind deceived Sergio Rico as well. If you watch the the goal back, the ball just moves in a really weird way. Rashford is on the verge of being incredible. At the moment, in terms of this moment of form that he's in. And it's just been little things. Wasn't it last, last season, wasn't he on the verge of becoming incredible as yeah, well? And yeah, then he, yeah. And then he didn't quite. Exactly. And he seems like a tiny, tiny bit closer okay. to it this time around. How old is he? Is he 19 or something like that? He's still not that old, is he? No. 21, I think. Oh, is he? Yeah, he's okay. 21. Yeah, he is 21. He was 21 on Halloween because uh, we interviewed him just afterwards, so I, I should have known that. But he's on the verge of it, of it really sort of spectacularly going well for him and, mm. and him showing the type of form that you were just alluding to a moment ago that you sort of see him really break out. So I, I, I'm going to keep a real close eye on him over the next few weeks because he potentially 
this could be this could be him now. This we could eventually now be seeing what Rashford has been working towards all these years. Brilliant. And another promising youngster coming through is Harry Redknapp, who uh, off the field has just sealed the. I'm a celebrity. Get me out of here. Title. I, I got to admit, I didn't watch a single minute of this. No. Did he? What was his key moment? What did he do that won him the title? <laughs> Is it a public vote? Yeah, it was just. So him. was it just his natural sympathia? Yeah, and his painting Sandra as well, which anyone who's watched it will what? know what I'm on about, and then everyone else won't have a clue. He his, painted his painting Sandra. Huh? It would take me ages to okay. just leave it there. Let let the let the audience decide but whether they know, know what I'm on about. You know. If you know, you know. All right, yeah. Then. It's one of those, James. Sasha, are you going to Anfield on Wednesday? No, not this time. I think I need a bit of time to recover from a weekend exertions. Right. I think I'll start building up the Club World Cup in my okay. mind. Um <laughs> the uh <laughs> and I've spent I think Copa Libertadores finals have basically taken about six weeks out of my excited mind. I was really excited about this, about all the mess. And I just hope River Plate uh, go to Abu Dhabi and beat Real Madrid. Okay. Who are the other two teams involved? Uh, there's several, actually. So there's Al Ain, uh, the UAE. There is uh, Wellington. Okay. Uh, there is Esperance yeah. de Tunis, uh, okay. the uh, African, um, African Cup champions. And who am I missing? Uh, I'm missing an Asian side. Kashimar Antlers. Kashimar Antlers, okay. Yeah. So looking forward to that one. It's yeah. going to be great atmosphere in Abu Dhabi. Brilliant. I'll be... I'll be re- I'll be rooting for Kashimar Antlers, which is one of my favourite team names in the whole world. And it's a nice time of year for them as well. No, it wouldn't be nice. Antlers, <laughs> Antlers. Sasha. Okay. Wow. So anyway, right. Well, so Thursday we're back with more. Many thanks to Michael, Ian, and Sasha for being with us. And you, listener, enjoy our other Toogly podcasts in the meanwhile, and we'll catch up with you Thursday. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, a Muddy Knees Media production. For sales and advertising, email sales at muddykneesmedia.com. And don't forget to check out our other football shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and everywhere else you get your audio on demand. Supporting your team can be a beautiful thing, but then come the injuries, the goal droughts and the downright disastrous defeats. That's a little bit like life, really. And here at the Totally Football Show, we believe we should all support each other the way we support our team, through the good days and the bad. And that's why we're continuing to work with Calm, the campaign against living miserably, a charity dedicated to preventing male suicide. On average, 12 men take their own life every day in the UK. So that's your starting 11 and your manager every single day. And part of the problem is that many of us still feel uncomfortable talking about mental health and suicide, and this can often stop men from opening up and getting support when they need it the most. So if you're worried that someone close to you is having a tough time, check in with them and let them know that Calm is there. Every day from 5pm till midnight, Calm provide a free, confidential and anonymous helpline and web chat for any man who needs support. Visit thecalmzone.net to find out more about Calm.